The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. There's a dynamic that happens in our home for Rebecca and I with our kids, and um, maybe it's similar with you um, in your home if you have kids. Um, but if uh, one of our kids like falls down and gets hurt, maybe they skin their knee, there's really only one scenario in which they would run to me, and that's if Rebecca's not around. Every other scenario, they are going to go find mom, and there's going to be tears, and they don't have to say anything. All they have to do is just weeping, just put their hands up like this. And I think there's several reasons for that. Rebecca just has such a a warmth and such a care, very instinctual for her, and I think she scoops them up into her arms, and uh, and she just um, does such a beautiful job of bringing comfort and love and warmth and acceptance to them. But I think it's, there's another dimension to that as well. I think to some degree that is inherent for moms. In fact, I think back when I was a kid on the playground and if I was playing with a bunch of other boys and one of us fell and skinned our knee and let's say a little boy skins his knee and he's fighting back tears, he's trying not to cry, one of the other boys might taunt him by saying, what are you gonna do, go cry home to your mama? I mean, it's like kind of inherent that um, there's something about mothers that is kind of that, sometimes we even say the idiom, um, like, a, like a mother hen. You know, there's something warmth, uh, warmth about a mom that pulls in, and it's to varying degrees, and maybe it's not with every single uh, mom, but there's at least enough where that's kind of inherent in humanity that we see that. But there's another side of moms that evokes a very different emotion, And that's not the side of moms that's mother hen. That's the side of moms that's mama bear. That's not like warmth and comfort. It's terror, okay? And that's the side of moms, like if you're messing with one of her babies or if one of her children is threatened, you don't want mama bear to come out. So let me give you an example of this. And to me, um, this is a situation that happened. It's a true story, happened about 10, 15 years ago. What happens when mama bear side of a woman comes out against actual, literal, real live bear? Like what happens? Well, we actually, the world has seen this now, and this happened several years ago, um, and it happened in a town known as Avujavik, Canada. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with the good town of Avujavik. You probably vacationed there this past summer. Um, Avujavik is a town of 300 people. It is the northernmost settlement in mainland Quebec in Canada. Um, To give you an idea of how far Avujavik is away, if you were to get in your car and drive from Miami up to Toronto. That's a long drive, I think we can agree. You would have to then drive about the same distance north again to get to Avujavik. So after that 50 to 60 hour drive maybe, you might as well drive the extra three hours to the Arctic Circle because you're almost there, okay? That's where this is. And there's a woman who lives there named uh, Lydia Angiu. And Lydia, this is how the other townspeople described her. This is their words. They described her as five foot nothing and 90 pounds soaking wet. So a a small, petite woman. They describe her as being kind of quiet by personality. And one day they saw a very different side of Lydia. She walks outside and she sees a group of children playing hockey in the street. 
and she sees them playing and she sees them starting to make a commotion and pointing and talking. And she looks to where they're pointing and she sees an eight foot tall, 700 pound polar bear moving towards eyeing this group of children. As a reminder to you, polar bears make good stuffed animals, not friendly in real life, okay? They are known as one of the most violent, mean, vicious creatures on planet Earth. So she sees this, this bear looking at, her, at these kids, including her seven-year-old son. And then Mama Bear came out. She shouted, tells the boys to run, and she runs at the bear while they're fleeing, and starts punching the polar bear. Now, you may not know a lot about polar bears, but let me prepare you in case you ever have an encounter. They don't like that. (laughs) She starts punching the polar bear. It takes its huge paw, swats her across the face, knocks her down, and then jumps on top of her. She starts kicking it in like a cycling motion like this, and it swats her again so that she now rolls over. And just then a townsperson comes off, comes out, fires a rifle into the air. The bear looks up at the neighbor. She crawls and scampers away. Then the, the neighbor lowers the rifle, and it takes four rounds from the rifle before the bear drops dead. And the town never looked at Lydia quite the same after that. They said they'd never seen anything like that. Five foot nothing Lydia, quiet Lydia, came alive. And Mama Bear versus Polar Bear, Mama Bear did pretty well, okay? It's pretty surprising. Now, can we all agree? I say all of that to say, can we all agree that you don't want to mess with a mama when her children are threatened? Can we agree on that? Yes. We wholeheartedly agree, don't mess with mama when her kids are threatened. Now, by all of us agreeing on that, and I think that's true, by all of us agreeing on that, we've actually just done something profound. We've actually just done something not only profound, we've done something countercultural. Because what we've agreed on, which is a truth that I think is valid, But by agreeing on it, we've just said that we believe that there's something, there's an essence to femininity or motherhood that is powerful, beautiful, worthy of honor, worthy to be celebrated. Something in essence, there is an essence to femininity that we can say this is true and we should celebrate it. And our culture, our generation, is very hesitant to say anything about the essence of either masculinity or femininity. And what our culture really is only comfortable doing, our generation, is to say that every person should look inside and define for themselves how their masculinity or femininity or or beyond should be expressed. And any statement, our generation is very skeptical of any statement describing 
any essence, essential part to femininity or masculinity for fear that it would be restrictive, confining, or oppressive. So here's what we've discussed so far in our series, and you can get caught up by going back and, and looking at it. We talked about really the main question that we're wrestling with as a generation is, is there truth inside or is there truth outside? If there's truth outside, then we discover, learn that truth, and then conform, change, transform what's inside to match the fixed external reality. If the truth is inside, then anyone, everyone looks inside and finds truth and needs to be then faithful to what they find inside. What we've discussed so far is, is that to believe that truth is found inside, which is across the board what our generation believes and what we train as a generation, children all the way on up. It's the, what's the essential message of most um, movies for children, most cartoons, most television shows, stories, songs, is that there's truth inside. Follow your, follow your truth, find your truth, be true to yourself. Um, we, we over and over teach that in so many different ways that there's truth inside. And what we've talked about so far in the series is that idea is illogical. It would reject all of science that is exploring and experimenting external truth and then conforming to it. It's not sustainable. We as a society, if someone's inner truth is to go out and hurt and oppress people, we say, no, that's wrong. Don't follow that inner truth. So it's not sustainable. But we would also say it's not healthy for the individual. And we know this. Because if anyone were to look inside, and let's say, for example, if a man were to look inside and say, here's what I find inside, chauvinism and misogyny, we'd say, don't follow that truth. But on what basis? See, we know it's not logical, it's not sustainable, and it's not healthy. All of us, whether we want to admit it or not, have hurt, wounds, brokenness, bias, prejudice, we have things inside that need to be healed. There's actually things inside that are holding us back that we wish we could be freed of. And so here's really what our culture is longing for, is an external truth that could actually set us free. Because here's why, and this is important to know, here's why our culture has defaulted to finding an internal truth for everyone to find their own truth and be true to it because it seems like every other external truth that's been said to be the truth ends up somehow being used to oppress or restrict people. And so we say, what if it's just better if everyone has their own truth? But in the end, again, that's not logical, sustainable, or healthy. So what we're longing for is, what if there could be a truth one truth for all humanity, one external source that if all of us then conformed what was inside to it, it would actually set each of us free with fullness of life. And not only set each of us individualistically free, but then as a community, if we all were being conformed by that truth, changed by that truth, what's inside is getting changed by that. If all of us could do that, what if there's a truth that would actually lead to great, wonderful, beautiful harmony? We just wish we could find that one truth. So if we could find that, it would solve our problems. Now, you say, okay, preacher, I know where you're going. You're a preacher. 
this is church, you're going to talk about the Bible. But before you say that the Bible is that one perfect truth, you've got to address the fact that the Bible has been used in many times and many situations. The Bible has been used to suppress and oppress people. And you know what? That is 100% accurate. The Bible has been used to oppress and suppress. It's been used, it's been used as a weapon to hurt other people. But the greatest tragedy would be if we let those abusers who have mishandled the Bible for their own agenda if we, beyond the abuse that's been done, if we were to let those abusers and oppressors keep us from the actual one truth that would really set us free. And you know what? This is maybe even just in your own life, you've had someone in a church or a family member or friend that has used the Bible in a way that's oppressive or manipulative and, and here's what I would encourage you. Even though they mishandled and misused the word of God, don't leave behind the one source of truth from the creator that is designed to free you and give you life abundantly. So here's what we're trying to do. Let's strip away our culture, our generation, and tradition, and let's just see what the Bible has to say about some of these most important things, especially things like gender and masculinity and femininity. What does the Bible say about that? And let's use faith and let's use logic. I wanna take you to Genesis chapter one. Would you open to the very first page of the Bible, Genesis one? I wanna look at verse 26, because gender is such an important part of, of, of creation and humanity. I want you to see what it says right in the beginning. Um, the very mention of inventing humanity, it talks about gender. Let's look at Genesis one. We're gonna start in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now pause with me there. A lot is in there. There's so much in there. We could spend months just on this, but this is the introduction to humanity. God has made humanity. And one of the first things it says about humanity is the highest compliment that uh, we could be paid. He said he's made humanity in his image. The beautiful, glorious, almighty, powerful God has said of all of his creation, he's going to make one part of his creation in such a way that we reflect something about him. We are made in his image. Then he says, 
It's not just humanity in general made in his image. He's made us male and female. Masculinity and femininity are both then reflecting God's image. So think about this. There's something that God wants to reflect about himself in masculinity. There's something that God wants to reflect about himself in femininity. And then he calls all of humanity, thirdly, all of humanity, that's men and women, are to have authority over the earth. They're supposed to steward the earth together, male and female, as humanity. They're stewarding this earth together over the things that God has created. They're supposed to lead um, uh, as and steward what is God's and lead it. He's placed men and women and humanity to do that. Now, what has this taught us? It's taught us a couple things right off the bat. Um, men and women are both made in the image of God. Humanity has been made as male and female. And by putting both man, by making both men and women in the image of God and placing both of them over authority over the rest of creation, he is stating something very clearly that we need to pause and say out loud. Male and female are equal. Men are not superior to women. Women are not superior to men. Both men and women reflect the image of God. And that needs to be said out loud because that has not always been taught and believed throughout history. And that's not always taught and believed in modernity. And even where that's sometimes said out loud and believed, that's not lived out in practice. Both men and women are created equal before God. But also it implies, by the fact that men are reflecting part of God and women are reflecting part of God, it implies that while they're equal, there are beautiful, instructive things that are distinct. What could those be? Well, let's turn a page. Genesis chapter 2 gives us a little bit more about when God uh, invented humanity. So turn a page with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. Here's what it says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So far, God has placed Adam in the garden of Eden, and he said that he's there to keep and to cultivate the garden. And then God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, a lot in here. Let's recap. Adam's placed in the garden. 
Adam is called to cultivate. God has to tell Adam, and this is interesting, he has to tell him that it's not good that he's by himself. He's so busy cultivating, he doesn't notice. So then God gives Adam a project to teach him. Because obviously this is not instinctively, instinctive for him. He gives him a project. He says, here, Adam, let's do something together. Why don't you name the animals? So he starts bringing the animals, and Adam sees, oh, there's two zebras, and there's two lions, and there's two giraffes, and there's two eagles. And slowly God's teaching him something. He's like, you're right, I am alone. I'm by myself. All of them have, you know, a partner, but not me. And so God says, I'm going to make a helper for you. Now let's pause on this word helper for a second because the way that reads in the English is not how it reads in the Hebrew. The way that reads culturally in the English, I really only use the word helper when I'm talking to a child. So like I use the word helper when I'm talking to my three-year-old Hope and maybe I'm doing a, like a house project or um, you know, maybe I'm you know, in the kitchen making some food or something. I'll be like, hey, Hope, do you want to be my helper? And she says, okay. And then we pull up a stool and she stands next to me and she helps. Now, her help is actually less helpful, if I'm honest. It'd be better if I did it by myself, but I'm for the sake of just the relationship, we're doing it together, and she is my helper. So I really only use, in modern English, the word helper in honestly kind of a patronizing, condescending way. And so it's a little bit like weird to read, like what is the sense of the Hebrew here of a helper? So here's the sense. The word help is most naturally used in the Hebrew for a military term. It is when an army is fighting and they're losing and another army comes in as their aid, as their help. That army comes in as a help and because of that ally that comes in to fight with them, they win. That's why this is a commonly used to describe God. Clearly cannot be condescending and patronizing when you talk about God as your help. I lift my eyes up into the hills. Where does my help come from? God is that allied army that if he didn't come in and swoop in, in the end, you would not have won. So God says, you need help. And so here's what God does. He made Adam out of dust, but he's going to do something different with Adam's help. He's going to lay Adam in a deep sleep. The sense of the Hebrew there is a sleep like death. And he's going to pierce Adam's side and he's going to, out of that wound, he's going to pull a rib. And he's going to make Eve out of that rib. He's going to close up Adam. Adam rises up there in the garden, wakes up, and God says, how about this woman? And he presents Eve to her, and Adam worships. Now we're talking. This is something different, God. Okay. All right, I'm on board now. I see the whole alone part now. I'm getting it. And he presents Eve to her, and he worships. And uniquely, what we have is we have Eve coming from Adam. Now, Paul picks up on this later in the New Testament, and Paul points out something very interesting about the nature of men and women, men and, women and it's instructive. The first woman comes out of a man, and after that, every single man comes out of a woman. There's something instructive about how men and women need each other. 
something instructive. Something very beautiful that commentators over the, over the millennia have noted about the rib. And Matthew Henry is the one I'm going to read. He's several hundred, uh, lived several hundred years ago, but he's not the first. Um, there's others uh, up to a thousand years ago that picked up on the same sense. But I love how Matthew Henry's remembered for how he put this. Listen to this. That the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Interesting words and beautiful insight. Why the rib? He's saying there's something distinct about these two together. Interesting that, interesting to note, it wasn't, apparently, one way to look at this chapter is that it wasn't intuitive and instinctual to Adam that he needed that relationship. He needed a whole lesson. But Eve didn't need that lesson. It's interesting. There are some, there's a distinct harmony here. Now let's, let's pause and review. God made humans. He made human male and female. He made each to reflect part of him. That means that he has an agenda for what masculinity shows and what femininity shows. And that they're, they're equal, but yet distinct. And in harmony. But it doesn't stay like that. Let's turn another page. This is Genesis now, chapter 3. They've disobeyed God. They ate the forbidden fruit. And there are consequences to sin that God is going to tell them. Here is now what the consequences of what's happened. Um, let's pick it up in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. It's interesting that the consequence for Adam who was placed cultivating and so busy cultivating that he needed to be trained about his relational need. He, it's interesting that the consequences for Adam are communicated to him in cultivating terms. The ground that you're working is now going to be difficult and hard and by the sweat of your brow. And it's also interesting that Eve, who seems to have some relational instincts that maybe Adam doesn't have, or to the degree that Adam has. It's interesting that the consequences for Eve are communicated in relational context. It's when it comes to childbearing and her relationship to Adam. And here's specifically what it says about her relationship to Adam. It says, your desire will be for him, but he will rule over you. Now, what does that mean? There's much debate on what that means. Uh, it's important to know exactly what that's saying. In the very next chapter, chapter four, it says something very similar about Cain. And it tells us by that immediate context what that's saying. 
And the, the d- description here is a fight for dominance. You will desire to dominate over him, but he will dominate over you. That is part of this. That, that's what's now going to happen because of the sin. What was harmonious would be very broken. Now think of how profound that statement is. Because as we look back on human history, humanity has a long legacy of men oppressing women. A long legacy of that. What's interesting is that modern sociology and anthropology doesn't really have a very thorough or good answer to what is inherent in what's going on. How come you don't find as many cultures? Like how come there's not an equal number of cultures where women are oppressing men as you find men oppressing women? Like that's almost never the case. It's culture after culture after culture, you find a new way often of men oppressing women. What is the answer to that? Scripture gives an answer. It goes all the way back to sin. And there was once something harmonious in the garden that got disrupted. But the scripture also gives the solution that I believe our generation can't get. It's that there was one who came who was a new Adam, Jesus Christ. He was the one that all creation was yearning for. And he came in to remove the effects of sin and death. And what Jesus does is bringing back the kingdom of God, restoring on earth as it is in heaven, the harmony that God is calling us to. And he's called us to be agents of a higher kingdom, bringing about what God intended on earth from what he intended in heaven. And we're to be agents of that. Now, what that means in Christ to recapture how God wants men and women to relate together. We're going to talk about that in part four of our series next week. But for this week, let's just pause and see what so far Genesis 1, 2, and 3 have told us. Because there's some things that are very clear. God made humanity together to rule over and steward the earth. He made humanity as male and female both men and women are made in the image of God. What that, what that means then is that masculinity reflects a part of God. Femininity reflects a part of God. What that means is men and women are equal, yet we should look to where God, our inventor, is showing us how there are beautiful distinctions. And we should look to those things and celebrate them. That tells us that God has... So he has an agenda for masculinity and femininity, and it's not for us either as individuals or as traditions or as culture to define masculinity and femininity, but it is for God to define it. So then, how does God define masculinity? How does he define femininity? Well, let me show you a few things from Scripture. If femininity and masculinity are reflecting part of God, what parts of God is he trying, of himself, is he trying to show us? Now, the Bible um, refers to God, one of the names of God 
that the Bible talks about is God the Father. He reveals himself as Father. We don't pick the names of God. We don't make them up. He tells us his names. He's, re he's regarded as Father. And so sometimes we talk about the fatherhood of God. Now, it would be inappropriate, because he never reveals himself like this, to refer to God as mother. It's never, he never instructs us to do that. At the same time, we can miss many beautiful passages where he talks about that side of him that femininity reflects. Let me read a few of them to you. Let me take you um, first to Isaiah, verse 15. Listen to this. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. What a vivid description. A nursing mother. Could there be anything, any more uh, beautiful picture of the nurturing of a mother than uh, when she's nursing a child. I mean, the warmth, commitment, that's a woman literally giving of herself to her child. And God says a, a, a mother nursing her child would never neglect her child. And yet, even more so, I will not neglect you. That's a, that's a reflection of who God is that femininity reflects. Did you know even Jesus used an image like that? Listen to this. Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is weeping literally over Jerusalem and here's what he's saying. I would have gathered you like a mother hen. That nurturing dynamic reflects God. That was Jesus' emotion as the Son of God over Jerusalem. How about this one? Hosea chapter 13, verse 8. This is God speaking. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Hmm. It's a little terrifying. It's God saying, you don't want to see the mama bear side. What has God just said? God has revealed himself and saying, I operate both as a mother hen and as a mama bear. He's saying that those are the, the care and warmth and nurture and also the strength the awesome strength and power of protectiveness over a child and over those that belong to them. He's saying, that is a reflection of me. He says the same thing about, some of the, some of the same things about masculinity. Here's a couple. In Deuteronomy 8, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord, God, your God, disciplines you. Thinking of a father disciplining his son. Um, listen again in Proverbs 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For as the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. He's not talking about a 
a mean, aggressive, like disciplinary father. He's saying a father who loves and delights his son and puts him under his arm and encourages him and builds him up and challenges him and coaches him and pushes him because he knows the good that's in him. He's saying, man, that, that, does that impulse to cultivate and get the best out of a, of a child, saying, fathers, men, you're reflecting that side of me. Saying, I've made men and women equal, equal in value. Saying, but there's parts of masculinity that reflect me, and there's parts of there are some distinctions that are reflecting me. So let, let's try and pull this together. Those things are clear, but let me suggest how would we pull this data together for something for us to process through? And let me just suggest this. This is for your discussion as married couples, as friend groups, as small groups, as young adults, um, as maybe a couple that's dating or engaged. Um, as teenagers or college students who go to college and hear that there's no difference between men and women other than biology or an assignment from a doctor. And as you're wrestling with, the Bible says something different. As you're wrestling that, let me just toss these out for your consideration. What it seems like the scripture is saying is that, ladies, there are many similarities that we have, but ladies, there's some things about you that are distinct to your femininity that are beautiful, powerful, strong, glorious reflections of God. And I, I, it seems like the things that he's saying is that ladies, you in general tend to have a really high nurturing capacity. You have a high instinct for intimacy and relationship. And that maybe is reflected at varying degrees within lady, within, among women. And it's not always reflected the same. And that's how maybe God has wired each, each woman, maybe a little different. But there's a high nurturing capacity. That's also not to say men, that there's not a call to have a high value for relationship. That also is not that some men actually have a high capacity for nurturing and intimacy. It's not to speak against that either, but it's to say that ladies, you're given that part of God that you reflect that should be celebrated because that's an incredible strength that he's showing off of his. It seems men that there's a side of himself he wants to express through masculinity. It's a side that has a, a tendency to prioritize cultivation, shaping, building, constructing, drawing the best out of. That's not to say that all men have that in the same capacity. It's varying degrees. And it's certainly not to say, ladies, you don't have that capacity to cultivate. In fact, even within a marriage, you might have a, a husband that has a really high nurturing capacity and a wife that has a strong cultivating capacity. It's not even to, to say one has to be more than the other or that it's expressed the same way in every marriage. But what, you may, what seems from the scripture is that there are, uh, th that God is showing off through femininity a high nurturing intimacy capacity and a high cultivation capacity in masculinity. So let's apply a little bit of logic. Do we see this play out in our life experience? 
There's a woman by the name of uh, Deborah Tannen. She wrote a groundbreaking book um, a number of decades ago. It became a New York Times bestseller. She's a, a doctor who did um, a lot of tests and studies on communication patterns between men and women. And the truths of that are so timeless, they're still talked about today, even though it's a few decades old. And what she did is she studied how um, males and females communicated all the way from like the playground all the way up into marriage. And here's what she noted from small girls up to women, from um, little boys up to men, is that women tend to use words in a certain way and men tend to use words in a different way. Women, she said, tend to use words for rapport, whereas men tend to use words for report. In other words, Ladies tend to use words for intimacy and to build relationship because they have a high capacity for that. Men tend to use words very utilitarian. So how might this play out? Well, just imagine, I'm just gonna toss out a hypothetical situation. Let's say you have a husband and a wife and the wife is walking through a difficult, difficult thing that she's struggling with, maybe at home or at work in a friendship. And so she wants to talk about it with her husband. She's gonna use her words and talk about her difficulty, but her primary instinct is to use those words for intimacy, to gain rapport. So what she's looking for from that conversation is deeper relationship, to be heard, to be understood, to be empathized with and validated. But the guy is hearing something completely different. It's like a different language. And all he's hearing is, oh, great. She's walking out the facts of a problem she needs me to fix. And so she's here, what she's using for, to gain rapport, he thinks she's giving a report, and so she's using it for intimacy, he's using it for utility. Probably because she has a bent towards a strong capacity for nurture and intimacy, he has a strong capacity for construction and building and, and cultivation. Um, how might this play out in, in, in friendships? Two women come together and they want to grow in their friendship. And it would be very natural, intuitive for them to go sit down, have a cup of coffee, look at each other's faces and have a conversation and get to know one another. They're going to use words and that opportunity. It's very intuitive for them to talk together and build intimacy and build relationship. To us men, that's weird. Okay? The idea of sitting with a guy and looking in each other's faces, it's like you know, avert your eyes, okay? What do guys do? If we're gonna build friendship, it's over a cultivating activity. We do a project together where our heads are not like this, they're like this. We do a project together. We do a sport together. We watch a game together. It's because, ladies, you have a strong capacity. You tendency is to have a strong capacity for intimacy and nurture. Men have a strong capacity for cultivation. Both are needed, both are instructive, and both play themselves out in differing ways. In fact, let me give you one more scripture. Both are important and reflecting part of God. And actually, when healthy, both genders can learn from each other and employ that in their life. Paul did. Listen to how Paul described his spiritual leadership to the Thessalonians. Let me just read you these verses. He says to them, 
looking back on his time there. He said, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul's saying, here's how our leadership was. We were motherly, affectionate, loving, self-giving, self-sacrificing. A couple verses later, he says this, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says his leadership, and by the way, earlier he says, imitate us. He says our leadership was both very nurturing in your life but also very cultivating. We loved you and gave ourselves to you, but at the same time, we coached you and encouraged you and pulled the best out of you and cultivated you. There's something beautiful that God is expressing through femininity. He has an agenda for it. There's something beautiful he's expressing about himself through femininity and something beautiful he's expressing about himself through, through masculinity. So how do we walk this out practically? A couple things, for starters, first of all, the things that are authentically, biblically feminine. And the things that are authentically, biblically masculine. And I say it like that because there's a lot that is traditionally or culturally feminine and masculine that are not biblical. So the things that are authentically, biblically feminine and the things that are authentically, biblically masculine should be honored and celebrated and never put down. Because if you denigrate something about true femininity or you denigrate something about true masculinity, you're talking about an attribute of God. It's never a punchline. It's something for you men to honor about your wives and lift up and celebrate and you wives to honor about your husbands and lift up and celebrate. Number two, because of that, we can never call something that is just cultural masculinity feminine, and femininity biblical. Don't confuse the two. That is where we take the Bible and use it abusively and oppressively because there's things that are said to be cultural expressions of femininity or masculinity, and they're said to be biblical, they're not. That can be expressed biblically, a nurturing bent for a woman and a cultivating bent for a man can be expressed in a number of different ways. Can I give you two prominent examples? Um, men, just because Cultivation tends to be a masculine side does not mean that you have to be the only one or the primary one that handles the finances. Doesn't mean that. Maybe you're gifted with a wife that is incredibly good at that. Wisdom would say, let her do it. Ladies, just because you have God says part of femininity, if we're reading the data correctly, is to have a strong capacity for nurture. That does not mean the only way that's expressed is by you being in the home and not having a career. There have been times in our culture and in our history, in our tradition, 
that it's said that it is biblical for a woman to stay at home and unbiblical for her to go to work. That distinction is unbiblical. That's not in the Bible. And the Bible actually says something completely different. The ideal woman, as described in Proverbs 31, talks about it like this. I wish I had time to read it to you. You should go read it this week. It talks about a woman who has, takes incredible care of her family to that they praise her. They lift her up, her husband and her kids honor her. And then it says, she goes and buys a field and plants a vineyard. That would have been unheard of in that time. You know what it's saying? She loved and nurtured her family and was a business owner. So that nurturing bent, yes, is beautifully expressed first and foremost at home, but can also be expressed in a professional environment. Men, your cultivating sense should be expressed first and foremost at home and then also in a professional environment. At the same time, ladies, if you feel a call and together with your, with your husband feel a call, no, I, I feel called to be home and not have a career and, and, or maybe um, put aside my career or my profession for a season and I wanna nurture my kids or maybe homeschool my kids or whatever it may be, don't be bullied by the culture into thinking that you're not utilizing your life in an incredibly important, powerful, impactful way. Because whether you have a profession or not, for all of us, men and women, our first priority is home. So if you're giving your life to your first priority, all of your life to your first priority, you're giving your life to the, the best portion. I mean, the Bible has a high, high value for children. And to say spending a life for children is a waste is a sad, broken view of humanity. Children are a gift from the Lord and our greatest legacy each one of us will leave behind. Thirdly, first, never denigrate what's um, biblically feminine or biblically masculine. Secondly, don't call biblical what's really just cultural. But thirdly, be introspective in your own heart what, are, what has been passed down to you, men, as what it means to be a man? That's really not biblical. And ladies, what's been passed down to you as to what it means to be a woman, whether culturally or traditionally, that's not really biblical. And be able, and in discussion, peel those apart in a way that we're recapturing the life-giving essence of how we're wired. There's logic behind this, but it's a step of faith, isn't it? Why would we have faith? Because there's a new Adam named Jesus, and this is how much he loves you and me. He describes us to, to collectively as a bride, and he was a groom that came for us, his bride. And he loves us so much he suffered for us. He went to the cross and he died on the cross and in faith, he went to sleep, the sleep of death and they pierced into his side 
And what came out was the substance that made his bride, his blood. And he arose again from the sleep of death in a garden that he could recreate everything and make it new. Jesus has sacrificed so much for him, for us, for you ladies, for us men. He sacrificed so much. And if the father didn't spare his own son, would he hold back anything that we might have life? You can trust him. You can trust him with your life, your identity, your gender, and your soul. Let's close in prayer. Maybe today you want to give your life to Jesus. Make him your king. Make him your savior. I want to lead you in a silent prayer right there in your seats. Or maybe for those of you that are watching online, I want to just lead you in a silent prayer right there. Just silently say, Jesus, I surrender to you. Thank you for loving me. Help me to find life. And I know that you worked that through your death and resurrection. I make you my king. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you're watching online, go to cityrev.org faith. Just grab your phone. Go there real quick. If you're here, go to cityrev.org faith. If you put your faith in Jesus, we're going to mail you a Bible. If you're here, um, you can actually just go to the front desk, the front lobby. It says guest services. We'll put a Bible in your hands today. Just say, hey, I decided to follow Jesus today. Church, we're going to close with a song where we remind that we trust in Jesus. It's because we know what he's done. He's proved himself over and over in our life. We're going to celebrate Jesus, our King, who came to save us. Would you stand with me as we close with this song? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.